morning. It's great to be here. It's wonderful to be back at uh, the local church. I was looking forward to this so much. I've been, every time I come back, I see amazing new things that you guys are doing to your facilities. God has blessed this place so richly. Do you guys have that feeling? I mean, seriously, when I'm here, you know, and I think about how beautiful this place is, the space that you guys have, and I think about the worship band, and I think about, well, Torrin, sort of, but, you know. <laughs> anyway, no, your leadership is amazing. I mean, I just really, it's, a, it's really cool to be able to watch how this place has evolved over the last two years, and uh, I don't know, it's a real blessing to be with you guys. So I brag about you guys all the time, I should say. I'm maybe writing, I was writing an article the other day, and I just thought, you want a model for what it's going to be like to do a church right? Local church. I have a mentoring group of about eight guys that I work with at, uh, over at Th- Calvin Seminary. And I've got this, I was just thinking about it this morning. I've got this crazy idea. I think they're all in internships, you know, so on Sunday they have to be someplace. I'm going to tell them, call in sick, fake it, I don't care. Anyway, you're in seminary, don't tell the truth. So anyway, <laughs> anyway, and then I'm going to just round them up in the parking lot and I'm going to bring them in here and I'm going to say, copy it. You know, when you go out and you're going to pastor someplace, isn't that okay? You know, you just, I don't think he's copyrighted this. So, so anyway, so it's really fun to see your ministry. But you know what your strongest asset is? It's the community. Look around. It's the people who are here. It's the brothers and sisters you have in this room. So anyway, um, yeah, and they're just, I, this morning I met Kenzie over here, right? Ken, it's Kenzie? Yeah, right. So Kenzie, stand up Kenzie. Does everybody know Kenzie over here? Ella. <laughs> Alabama, three years, been here. Hold up those earphones. Those are, for her baby, she has baby beats. Can you believe this? <laughs> Who knew? But anyway, but you know the issue, you know, it's too loud for a baby. It's all that kind of thing. So anyway, but I was talking to Kenzie and I thought to myself, oh my gosh, if you have a room full of Kenzie's, this place is going to just be so amazing. And I think you do. So anyway. All right, so this morning, what I would like to do is I want to work with you in John chapter 14. You, we're in the season of Lent, and as you know, Lent is a time when we think about uh, the, last, uh, the last days of Jesus' life as he moves toward the cross. And of course, Lent culminates with Good Friday when Jesus is crucified. It actually ends with Easter Sunday when he is raised. And so therefore, Lent is a time of preparation as we are thinking about Jesus' movement forward toward toward the cross. So uh, last week, for instance, uh, uh, Torin was talking about John chapter 12, Jesus' last words in public, and today I want to talk about what is happening in the upper room. So remember, in the last week of Jesus' life, actually on Thursday night, Jesus gathered his disciples together. Um, This is when he has the Lord's Supper, his last meal with his disciples. He washes their feet, remember, and then he has a long farewell that he gives to them. And if you ever want to read about that, it's in John 13, verse 31, all the way through John 14, 15, 16, and a final prayer in chapter 17. Anyway, so you have here really rich teachings from Jesus. You really do. Now, John chapter 14 wrestles with an issue that is so deep to each one of us. Let's explore the issue before we get into the chapter. It's the issue of abandonment. Now, that sounds like a a sort of a dark theme, but let me tell you, you can ask any counselor, you can ask any therapist, and they will say to you, abandonment is so toxic so profound, 
it will do incredible harm, especially as you are growing up as a child. In fact, most therapists will say abandonment and abuse are the two largest things that can ever happen to a young child. Let me just give you some examples of this. How many of you remember when you were like seven or eight years old and you were in a large crowded store or the mall or something and you were walking holding one of your parents' hands and then you got distracted and maybe you let go, you did let go, and uh, they never let go of you, trust me. So anyway, you separate and then you look at the fun thing and then you turn around and they're not there. Raise your hand if you ever remember something like that happening. Right, and then you just started laughing and you said, how fun, I'm free. No, you started crying <laughs> and you started saying, oh my gosh, abandonment is deep down inside of us. It is. This idea that I am alone. I have had students over the course of my career, I think I mean one young lady from just five years ago at Wheaton College, she was an amazing young woman um, and the, the longer, I did her wedding a couple of years ago, it was so great. And... Um, her dad basically abandoned her when she was uh, a child, and she never knew him. It was a horrible experience. And that wound stayed within her, that sense of abandonment. Couldn't believe it. They started corresponding, and he showed up at her wedding. That's an amazing moment, you know, to see her and him together. And I knew the story. This wound just would never heal. It just simply wouldn't heal inside of her. Here's a more tragic story. You can think about a child, for instance, who is left alone. I had another student like this. They, she finally disclosed the whole story. A child, a baby, left alone in a crib, lights out for whole days at a time, just fed at night. Now, when you think about those kinds of stories, you know that they are actually wounding stories, difficult stories. Now, there's not just childhood stories like this. I mean, we think about our own lives as adults. And, you know, you, you could be in college right now, you could be 70 years old, it really doesn't matter. The fundamental question you're asking yourself is, am I alone in this world? That's the question. Does anybody care? Does anybody care at all what happens to you? Are you alone completely? I had a student whose parents just announced once when she, he was a sophomore, he said, hey, dad and I are going to move to Mexico. What? And then this guy says to me, my parents are gone. I have no parents in North Amer in America anymore. What happened to them? They're down in Cancun having fun for the next 10 years. What? The sense of abandonment was acute. I have a student of mine named Travis who actually is a, a chaplain intern at one of the larger uh, assisted living uh, places in Grand Rapids. And it's really fascinating to listen to Travis talk because as a chaplain, he wants to go into this work permanently now, and he will. Travis goes around into this assisted living place, and he describes to me the elderly who are what? Abandoned here in these nursing homes. It's tragic. And, and, and they are waiting to die. And Travis says to them, I know your family is not here, but you will not die alone. I will be with you. Are you surprised at a story like that? It happens all over the United States. Abandonment is something that we are afraid of. It is so huge. I do not want to be alone. It is fundamental to who we are. Jesus knows this. And therefore, in John chapter 14, he's dealing with the subject of abandonment. Now, you can imagine this is true. The trauma of Jesus' departure must have been all over their thinking. 
in the last week of Jesus' life, this is what's on their mind. It isn't just that Jesus is going to be murdered and is taken by surprise when he gets to Jerusalem. No, it is Jesus actually interprets his death as his departure. That's what he has to say to them. And when they realize this, that he's going to die and go away, it's a crisis. It's a crisis. They had left everything for Jesus. They had given a full attachment to Jesus. And now they have to imagine a world in which they are on their own. Now, so therefore, you, here, here's some verses. Take a look at this. You can see Jesus being very explicit, for instance, in John 13, Jesus says, I am leaving you and you cannot come. Where I am going, you cannot follow. Now, this is an amazing, bold pair of statements coming from Jesus. Here, look at the entire passage. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow later. So here we have the direct language from Jesus. You guys, you guys are imagining that you're going to be on your own. I know it's hard for you. It is virtually traumatic for you guys. But this is what he wants to do is give them assurance that he is not going to leave them alone. Now, John chapter 14 is organized like this. What happens in the upper room is four of Jesus' disciples decide to ask a series of prompting questions. So you can see them here on the screen. First there's Peter, and then there is Thomas, there is Philip, and then there is Judas. Now this is not Judas Iscariot, okay? He has left the room actually. This is one of the other apostles who is also named Judas. You can find his name in the list in Luke's gospel. So here, each of them are going to ask some kind of question that pushes Jesus to define his departure more carefully. So they're wondering, are you abandoning us? Are we on our own? Isn't this the worst possible thing that could ever happen to us? So the first thing that happens is Peter speaks first. So Peter speaks up. You always expect Peter to be a little bit on the impulsive side, not surprised. And here's what Peter asks. So... Where are you going after the cross? And Jesus says, don't worry, you will follow me later. And then Peter returns, I want to follow you now. So that's just like Peter. I mean, he's the guy that jumps out of the boat too fast. You know what I mean? Peter just says, all right, so you're going to leave us. I'm going to be right behind you the entire way. But Peter, Jesus says, no, 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 no. You don't get it. Look at chapter 14, 1 through 7. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Circle that in your Bible, many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And when I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way that I am going. So this is Jesus' first reassurance. It's the first reassurance that comes to Peter. Jesus is going to be with God, and when he is there, he is going to prepare a place for all of his followers. 
By the way, if you have a really old Bible or you sang some song once that said he's preparing a mansion for you, you better let go of that. Um, you're not going to have this man. It isn't about a mansion. Sometimes when I was little, I was thinking, how many square feet am I going to get? Because my brother is worse than me and I thought I'd get a better house. <laughs> so it says you're going to have a place. The Greek word is cool. It's mane is the, is the word. Hold on to that word. I'll use it in again in a minute. So anyway, so it's a place. In the Old Testament, when the tribes of Israel all came into the Holy Land, they were given allocations, a place. Same word used in the Old Testament. They all have a place in the Holy Land. You have a place, a location in heaven. There will be a mailbox with your name on it. Do they have mail in heaven? Who knows? I doubt it. So therefore, Jesus says, he will come for us. So therefore, when we are ready for heaven... He will bring us to himself. That is our blessed hope, we call it. So therefore, if he's planning for us, we are not forgotten. We are not abandoned. Heaven is anticipating our arrival. Let me tell you guys the craziest story that I got from my mom uh, just about a couple of years ago. I can't believe my mom never told me this story. It's the most, I just don't can believe it. So my mom is 91 years old right now. Um, my dad died about two years ago in 2017. And so my mom is on her own and we're all very, very close to her. I've always noticed throughout my life, and especially in the last few years, my dad always had incredible anxiety about death. My mom never did, never, she doesn't now, in fact, I talk with my mom about dying all the time. It's really amazing. If you have never done that, you need to start doing that. Because you can bet those seniors and older folks who are around you, they're thinking about it every day and it will be a gift if you open a conversation like that. So I talk to my mom about this all the time. And I said to my mom recently, I said, so mom, what is the, base, the foundation for you being so confident? And she says to me, oh, that started when I was eight years old. What? Tell me, what? Tell me what happened. She says, oh, I haven't told you this story. This is the story that has shaped her whole life. So at eight years old, she is in Chicago as a child. Her grandmother was there. Her grandmother was really, really sick. And actually, she was dying. Her grandmother was. And so it was like her grandmother was on her deathbed. And my mom was eight years old, standing at the foot of the bed, and my grandmother, her grandmother was sort of giving her last words about how to live your life and be a good little girl and all this kind of stuff, you know? And then my mom says, the room just filled with this blazing light. And she turned around and she couldn't see anything. She just thought, wow, how can this be? It's like sunshine. It's just so incredibly bright here. She looks back at her grandmother and her grandmother is just glowing with this kind of beatific, sort of amazing facial expression. And she says to her grandmother, what's going on? And her grandmother says, you don't see who's standing behind you? And my mom, at eight years old, she turns around, looks behind her, and she's just looking into this brightness and she sees two images, two figures standing tall, like angel type things. And she's like, what is that? She turns back to her grandmother and her grandmother says, 
They're ready for me. And the light goes out. The next day, her grandmother dies. So I say, my goodness, what does this mean? I mean, it's like my mom, at eight years old, walks out of the room thinking to herself, something absolutely miraculous happened. My mom has held that story for, do the math here, 81 years. So I said, has this really shaped you? She said, well, that's not the most important thing. I'm going to bring it on. What else happened? She says, it happened to me five years ago in her assisted living place. She said, I was just in bed, and you, your dad and I, we know the end is coming. And the Lord appeared to me just like my grandmother. My mom has no anxiety about dying. And we talk about it all the time. So Jesus says first to Peter, look, Peter, I am preparing a place for you. I've gone ahead for you. There is an anticipation for your arrival. Okay, so that's the first answer. There is a place in heaven awaiting you. There is. Stop the anxiety. Then Thomas, he's the next. Thomas speaks up. And he asks these questions. Well, we don't know how to get there. How is it that we're going to find this location? And Jesus says, um, I am the way to the Father. Let's look at the passage in verse 5. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? So in other words, they've all got the idea of the destination. It has got to be heaven with God. But you know, if you don't have GPS to heaven, I don't think we do, then how are we going to find it? Jesus said to him, I am the way. By the way, the word right there in the way in Greek, if you're doing, I know there's some cornerstone students here and you all breathe Greek all the time. <laughs> hados is the Greek word right there, hados. And that means a road. That's all it means. It means a road. When you walk out of here, it's, you're on a hados. So I am the roadway, the truth and the life no one comes to the Father but by me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Henceforth, you know him and you have seen him. So therefore, what here, what we have Thomas asking is, how do I set myself up? How is it that I'm going to actually make sure that I get to this great destination where you are? So Thomas's idea is, so heaven is way out there. You're going to be camping way out there. I, I guess, am going to come to be with you, but I'm not sure if I can get from here to there. And Jesus says... No, you don't get it. You don't need a map. You need me. I am the destination. I am the road, the path, the hadas. This is how you're going to get there. So therefore, don't worry about working your way to heaven. Make sure you embrace me, and I will carry you to that location. I just thought of this. I have another friend. This was a long time ago in which I was in seminary. I was probably 25 years old. It's 100 years ago. So here I was being mentored by this amazing woman who was leading the whole youth ministry in the church where I was an intern. Everything was wonderful. It was, she was so inspiring and so wise and so wonderful until the day she said she had a brain tumor. I had never had someone die around me in my life. Never like that. Not? Are you kidding brain tumor, and I watched her go in three months. 
And I remember this profound woman of faith, her body was just sort of shriveling up and she, was, she ended up on her couch the whole time. And my last conversation with her, I will never forget. She said to me, Gary, you are sad that I'm leaving. I can see it. You're upset. But I am going on the greatest adventure of my life. Because the Lord who has been living in me has promised me he will carry me to where he is. Is that cool or what? That was a four-minute conversation when I was 25 years old, and I'll never forget it. She died just a couple days later. So Jesus is saying to Thomas, look, hold on to me because I am the one who can carry you there. Now, Philip wants to go a little further. And so Philip says, okay. So apparently, um, if we are holding on to you, you have just said that we will also know the Father if we are holding on to you. So show us the Father, Philip says. So is it true then somehow that you are bearing the Father inside of who you are? Jesus says, you have seen the Father. Here, look at the text. Philip said to him, show us the Father and we shall be satisfied because we all know God the Father is the one who rules heaven. So really, if we just make sure we know who he is and where he is and what he's like, I'll feel better. Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you don't know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. What in the world? If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father? So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. What kind of a revelation is this? Jesus is now saying, well, look, hold on to me, because when you're holding on to me, you're also holding on to the, the Father, unbelievable. You are encountering the Father when you encounter Jesus. This is an enormous teaching. Let me put it to you this way. Jesus apparently then is saying, he did not come into the world to represent the Father. That's tattoo worthy. He came into the world to present the Father. Think about what those two things mean. He did not come into the world to represent the Father as if he was an emissary speaking on behalf of someone who is distant. He did not come into the world to represent the Father. He came into the world to present the Father in himself. Occasionally, I have conversations with people who have this kind of scenario in their minds. And, you know, children will ask about this all of the time. Um, they think about death more than you would ever imagine. I was driving my eight-year-old granddaughter around in my car going to gymnastics the other day. She lives in Grand Rapids. Anyway, we're in the back seat, and we were just talking about getting older, and I said, you're going to be 16 before you know it, and you're going to be driving the car. She goes, yeah, can't wait. I go, yeah, and then someday you may get married. She goes, I don't know if I want to get married, because you have to have a baby, and that's all icky. <laughs> and I says, well... It'll be exciting. I want to come to your wedding. And she says to me, but will you still be alive by then? <laughs> From the backseat of cars, you hear all kinds of crazy stuff. But they're thinking about this. And so therefore, I have had conversations about dying with my grandchildren. It's not my favorite topic. I'm just warning you. So, Anyway, what happens with many people is they think, 
when they go to heaven, they're going to step through those gates and they're going to suddenly see Jesus and they're going to think to themselves, oh man, it's so good, Jesus, you found me because I know the Father is out there somewhere. Long beard, grouchy face. He is the one who made the world. He's probably really tired. So anyway, I don't know where he is, but I've got cover because I've got you. You know what I'm saying? And that is where Jesus would respond to you by saying the very same thing he said to Philip. Don't you get it? The Father isn't somewhere out there. Because when you see me, you have seen the the Father. So Jesus is actually embodying in himself the fullness of who God is. But Jesus wants to take this further. He wants to go to the next level. So he says, well, but there's more. Because I'm not only going to give you myself, but I am also going to give you the Holy Spirit. Here, look at John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. It's the spirit of truth. The world can't accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. He lives with you and will be in you. So therefore... Those of us who are obsessed, wondering about heaven all of the time, what we need to realize is that Jesus wants to bring a dimension of heaven into our own hearts. So Jesus begins talking about the Holy Spirit, and he says the Holy Spirit is going to take up residence here. I cannot tell you the number of times I've been with Christians who basically have this worldview. I am basically kind of trying to make it through this life and when I die, that's going to be my wonderful hope. It's going to be out there in heaven somewhere. Or Jesus is going to come back and stop all this craziness in the world. But for now, I'm kind of on my own. Jesus says, no, you're not. Because your spirit, the spirit of truth, the spirit of God, his own spirit is going to dwell inside of us. And that is going to lead us to understanding what is right and good and true. It is going to protect us. The world will not understand any of this. They have no capacity, no experience. The followers of Jesus are going to have an endowment which is utterly different than the world can ever know. All right, so there we have it. There is going to be this. Wow, Jesus now reassures them more, 1418. So I will not leave you desolate. That word right there, desolate, is actually the same word in Greek for orphans. And many translations take it like that. So I will not leave you as desolate orphans. I will come to you, yet a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you live also. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. So the idea is, it isn't just the Holy Spirit that is going to come into our lives, but it is Jesus himself who's going to come into our lives. That's an idea that Jesus is revealing to them. The Spirit is going to be not some spirit of inspiration. It is going to be the Spirit of Jesus himself that indwells each of us. He will not leave us. He will not abandon us. He will enter us and remain with us throughout the duration of our lives. The last question comes from Judas, the guy who's not Iscariot. So Judas asks, how are you going, how are you going to come back to us, I guess? 
how will we see your return? But the world is not going to see it. So Judas is thinking, wait, Jesus, I'm so confused here. So you are going to come back for us, but I really want all the TV cameras to watch it. I want it to be public. I want it to be spectacular because I want to have all of my critics be renounced. I'm hoping that's going to happen for me. How are you going to come to us and not the world don't see it? Jesus says, I will return in a way you cannot understand. See, when Jesus goes away after the cross, the world will say, look, he's gone and you're on your own. He abandoned you. But Jesus says the world will not understand. It cannot comprehend. The apostles can't even comprehend this. There is a surprise coming. And here we come to the great climax of the entire chapter, verse 22. Judas said to him, Lord, how is it that you will show us to yourselves and not to the world? Jesus says, if a person loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Circle the word home. Because do you know that the word there is kind of a play on words right here. It is the word mane that we had at the very beginning of the chapter. So therefore, when I think about my life, I think, well, okay, my real assurance in life is that somehow there will be a place for me in heaven. There's going to be a dwelling waiting for me. But now Jesus says, I want you to know there is a place of indwelling, a mane, a place, a home set up inside of your life. And that is where I want to reside. So the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the very life of the Father and the Son dwelling in us. This is the secret of Christian vitality. The Father and the Son, facilitated by the Holy Spirit, taking up residence inside of us. There is nothing like that inside of the world. So this brings us back to this motif of abandonment. Some of us think that following Jesus means believing all of the right things. Trust me, I know that's true. I give theology tests. <laughs> it's partially true because you have to know who it is you're following. Fair enough? Some of us think that following Jesus is obedience to a set of rules. Well, I guess that's somewhat true because discipleship means obedience. I get that. But here Jesus is showing us the real mystery of what it means to be a Jesus follower. It is living a life accompanied by Jesus himself. It is not a life that simply makes Jesus a confessional icon. In other words, someone who is remote and we have all of these beliefs we throw at him. We have all of these words that he wrote and therefore I've got to obey them. Jesus says, no, the Christian life is a life in which I accompany you. I'm within you. So Jesus is unveiling the real mystery of our discipleship. It is a life where his spirit resides inside of us. And that's what gives us a sustainable life for the difficult things that will come our way. So let's go back and make a final summary of this whole thing. So how is it that Jesus resolves this problem of abandonment? What does he do with this? 
Here, let's just land a couple of big ideas. These are the big ideas that I'm telling you, gee, we need to have. It's so important to us. First of all, Jesus says to his apostles, look, I am going to die on the cross. They're going to bury me in a tomb, but my life is more powerful than my death. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, and then he has the power to take it up again. John chapter 10. Okay, okay. So I'm not abandoning you. You'll miss me for three days. Don't worry about it. Get over it. I'll be back. So the cross and the tomb are not the end of the story. Jesus is going to be raised. We'll meet together on the other side of the cross. You won't be alone. Good news for the apostles. Second idea. Jesus is going to meet us at our death. He will not abandon you on the day you die. He will not abandon you on the day you die. You are going to go on the most amazing adventure of your life. And the moment this chapter ends for you, he is going to be the first you see. In John chapter 11, remember this. Same person who wrote this. Lazarus dies, and when he walks out of the tomb, whose face is the first he sees? It's Jesus, exactly. So therefore, we don't have to have anxiety about this. He has a place for us in heaven, a place. And when you cross that threshold, you are going to be taken to that place. It is a place that's with him. You won't be alone. Third idea. Jesus loves this world. He does not abandon things he loves. He will return to this world, and when he comes, every eye will see him. Evil will be judged. The rulers of the world will be put on notice, and Jesus' followers will celebrate like there's no tomorrow. No, Jesus has not given up on this world. He is on his way back. Next big idea. Christ is with us. Christ is in us, in the Spirit. So here I live in the meantime. I'm waiting for the second coming. I know I'm going to die. I'm going to be in this place in heaven. But in the meantime, the Spirit of Jesus is going to be with you, guiding your life, protecting you, deepening your love for Jesus, and awakening in your heart a hunger to study His Word. You will not be alone in the course of your living. And then lastly, finally, Jesus is saying, if you're a wise and mature Christian, you're not trying to make it on your own. That's foolishness. That's a dead end. If you're a wise and mature Christian, you're going to live inside of a community of brothers and sisters just like you have here, and they are going to invigorate your life. They're going to pray for you, encourage you. They're going to help to transform you because they are bearers of God's Spirit just like you. When the community of the body of Christ gathers together and they worship, it is the Spirit of God renovating everything that is happening here in this space. Can you imagine? We're not just humans worshiping God who is out there somewhere. God's Spirit is within us, participating in our worship. This is why the church is called the body of Christ. 
Because Christ is present when our community comes together and exhibits the kind of love that Jesus is calling for. We are not alone. So here's the fundamental question. Jesus wants to nail this question, fundamental question for us. It is deep in our psyche. Are you and I alone in this world? And you just got to figure it out for yourself. If you're in college right now, you go to graduation and you know it's a cliff. You just drop off and you disappear and die. (laughs) Just the way it goes. I'm just warning you. Are you kidding me? That's not the way life works. Christ is with us. Christ is above us, worthy of worship. Christ is before us, leading the way. Christ is alongside of us, encouraging us as we go. Christian discipleship is about living a rich life with Jesus. That's what it means. It is not simply a creed or a code. A richly lived Christian life is a life in which you are revitalized every day because you are connected to the spirit of Jesus that dreams things for your life that you have never dreamed yourself. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord God, we do pray that you would give us a fresh vision for what it means to be your follower. Oh Lord, seal in our hearts, confirm in our hearts this idea that you are with us. We are not alone. And you do not abandon those whom you love. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.